0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Hi I Like Maths. My name is Linda, I'm the host of the show. I'm a applied mathematician, I did a PhD in it. Uh, I teach maths in different universities in Sydney and I'm the founder of Bungie Pie, which helps children learn maths using storytelling, animation and real life applications. Hi I Like Maths is my own initiative to introduce you with great minds and talk about the importance of maths in our lives. Today, I have a great speaker, Professor Mary Mariscott from the University of Sydney. She is a passionate speaker, researcher and lecturer, and would like to talk about honeybees, which I'm fairly passionate about anyway. But before giving you more detail about her background, please, um, I would like to ask you to subscribe to our platforms and support us to continue this great work. Mary received her first degree in applied maths from the University of Sydney and then completed her PhD at Oxford University at the Centre for Mathematical Biology, supervised by Jean Mori. She returned to Sydney to take up a research position in the School of Chemistry at Macquarie University, where she studied the mathematics of chemical reaction kinetics and became interested in the models for collective behavior in social insects. Mary has worked on problems in social insect behaviour in collaboration with biological scientists at University of Sydney, Macquarie University and CSIRO. Mary is Professor of Mathematical Biology and teaches mathematics to science and engineering students in the School of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Sydney. I invite you to listen to Thank you and I welcome you to uh, my podcast which is Hi Unlike match. and yeah. um, I simply started with asking um, some questions by your background so yeah. uh, is it possible please uh, give us some details about your background, schooling time, what did you want to uh, be growing up?
1: Okay well I mean I, I grew, I, I'm an unusual person, my mother has a degree in mathematics. Oh wow. Yeah, and uh, and my father is a biologist, so maybe it's not surprising where I ended up. Um, But uh, I I wasn't born in Australia. I was born in England, and we emigrated when I was about six. So I went to school at the local high school, Karengai High School, up by Karengai Chase, and then came on to Sydney University to do science. Mm -hmm. So I've I've always liked maths because... um, you know, as a student, school student, I found math soothing. It's sort of, you know, you could do problems and they were all manageable. Mm-hmm, whereas mm-hmm. with something like English, you were doing much more sort of integrated thinking, which was fun in its own way. But, um, but uh, I, it's just different. It has, it has a different sort of emotional versus intellectual content. So I always liked maths. I was always good at maths, although as my friend at school said, you weren't very good at algebra, were you? Because <laughs> I still always make a lot of mistakes, but right. but the concepts. And, um, and then so I came, and what I loved about maths, and I still love about maths, is just how useful it is, how it tells you things about the world. Mm-hmm. And you... In high school, you really only saw that in the physics curriculum, as it was then. I know it's changed since then. So I came to uni thinking I would do physics. Yeah. Um, and I very quickly, well, no, not that quickly, but I, after two years, I found out I really wasn't interested in the content of physics.
0: Oh, okay.
1: I just don't care about electrons. <laughs> 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 you know, um, waves and you know, all sorts of things. Um, I mean the sort of Newtonian mechanics was fun, right. but that was kind of because the the, the modelling ideas behind it. Um and so I went into third year sort of thinking well I'm going to do pure maths and applied maths because those are the subjects that I've done so far and I mm. can continue on. And mm. not really with much of a vision where I was going. And then yeah. when we in third year we did this unit on Mathematical biology, basically, differential equations, phase planes, a whole lot of techniques that you use to model, to to apply mathematics to the real world Mm -hmm. and the real biological world. And it was primarily, it was mainly about ecology modeling and sort of the real stuff that is the real classics of basis of math biology but i just thought oh wow this is what i want this is how i want to use math. oh wow yeah that's fascinating
0: area oh i mean
1: you know there's so, so, so many opportunities and, and you know that too yeah so many opportunities to use mathematics in biological systems yeah yeah and i also say to people physics and math is easy because parts <laughs> of properties which yeah. is as linear the property it has is linearity what you put in you get out some multiple of that whereas may, most biological systems are highly non so they're quite complicated yeah. Yeah. and um, what you put in you might get out something different or something similar you know it, 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 it's not so predictable no, and no. that's one of the reasons why you need the math because if you have the math you have a tool to help you with predictability and to help you understand the processes mm, mm. so um so I went into I did non-honors in um looking at how certain sorts of bacteria move right and uh, I then went on did a master's extending that work and then I went to Oxford and studied um how cells move and wow, the chemical right. stimulus so, so you know so yeah so it was a sort of it was kind of just finding my niche within it particularly within applied math yeah yeah this was where i like to see mathematics at work
0: wow it's great Mm. it's great yeah i'm certainly into it i I love that i know the first time we met um yeah i was doing post at cpc and i was I was that that was actually the first i think you were quite well the, ahead of me <laughs> and uh, you started uh, you you found that passion i think early on compared to me that i found that passion right then when i started my postdoc and yeah i found it very very interesting and it's a huge demand for it in this space yes. it's a huge yes, demand right. because it's like a yeah. very complicated uh, area and maths can certainly help so um so So I think you um, talked about your, um, you know, your your journey uh, very to start us till now, but if you would like to add anything else about your career path, feel free to.
1: Yeah, I mean, in a way, I spent a lot of my time at University of Sydney, which is both good and bad. Um, So I came back from my um, doctorate. I came Mm -hmm. back and I worked at Macquarie University in the School of Chemistry as a mathematician wow. on a biological problem. So I was wow. just a sort of walking intellectual identity crisis, really. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but that was when I became interested in bees, because we were studying. Um, I mean, I was doing a biological problem, but the other thing I was doing was looking at coal combustion. So oh. and, and generally combustion of hydrocarbons. Um, and so you have a lump of coal and it catches fire and it's an exothermic reaction, so it produces heat and it makes the rest of the coal hotter. So that makes mm. facilitates that catching fire. So that's the sort of exothermic reaction we were thinking about. And my boss came in and he dropped onto my desk a paper about the um, thermoregulation, temperature control inside hanging swarms of bees
0: wow
1: so these are these are swarms of bees that have settled on a branch or something right and they have a very particular temperature profile there are people who stick thermocouples into these things
0: right
1: and um and I looked at the paper and I thought mm, I can do so much better than that <laughs> <laughs> because we've been and bees are like a little bit like coal because the warmer a bee gets the faster her metabolism goes, and so the more heat she produces. That's but bees can control the loss of heat, whereas wow. coal can't, but bees can, as they hang in the swarm, can move apart and they yeah. can control the heat flux in that. It's
0: really um, interesting.
1: Yeah. So that's got that was what got me into bees, was right. actually via exothermic reactions and heat control.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but I've done a lot of other stuff with bees and a bit of ants and even some termites. So these are mm. all social insects. Yeah. Um, although recently I've been off doing things, looking at cells again. So it's sort of returning right. to the things I did as a doctor right. student.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, mm. just curious to know, um, have you been able to use all this knowledge about bees and like in collaboration with oh, yes. in this industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've worked with quite a number of bee biologists. Um, mm. Ben Oldroyd, Madalena Beekman, Tanya Latty at Sydney, um, Andrew Barron at Macquarie. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: So, so, um, I mean, there's a whole lot of problems to do with with the populations of bees and hives and the spread of disease, decision-making. So how do honeybees choose a home? How do they choose where to forage? All of those. Very
0: interesting. yeah, Yeah,
1: all of those, yeah. You can you can do mathematics to, wow. to, to work on those problems and you work with experimentalists because yeah. you do want to keep your feet in reality yeah you do yeah. <laughs> but you, but you can you can you can use mathematics to pull things apart how does this process work or say if this is what we this is what we think is going on if that's true what are the consequences of it do we see those consequences right. um, you know so you can use it mathematics kind of as a tool to explore various complicated processes and then you have some idea of what you're looking for when you go to the experiments Mm -hmm. because experiments are you know time consuming and difficult and with bees they're seasonal and most of your experimental work you've got to do in the spring and the summer so you know there's there there has been a lot of collaboration over the years with people can't be scientists
0: that's great that's great great. I'm so excited to hear your talk um about bees. (laughs) (laughs) we're so excited to know because I've I've made six projects about honeybees I'm so um interested in them. I think they are very interesting insects I know that you you're quite into um biology but is there anything else you're passionate about is this your only passion (laughs) oh no I mean yeah I
1: I do I do a lot of other things I, I I I love walking bush walking right. um, uh, particularly uh, I mean particularly through the snowy mountains we've gone mm. there most summers you know um, it's and uh, yeah it is it's just just gorgeous yeah and uh, you know recently I've extended that to walking in in doing long distance walks in Britain which of course I haven't been able to do in the last couple of years, but yeah. uh, it's a, a good incentive to keep fit. Uh, <laughs> I, will get, I will get back there. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thing about Britain is you can walk from one bed and breakfast to the next, whereas right. in Australia, you've got to carry your tent and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just getting a bit old for that. Um, and, you know, dressmaking, um, which is, I keep saying mathematically, I'm edge to edge mapping of flexible sheets. To approximate a wow. three-dimensional geometric object, which is <laughs> usually my my second daughter, who's a musician and in <laughs> performance clothes, my okay, big
0: healthy honeybee hives. Mm, interesting. So,
1: yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, so this is a bit of work that we um, we did. Oh, probably about starting about ten years ago. Oh, wow. Um, and the question we were looking at the fact that honeybee hives are under stress mm-hmm. and what does that mean and how does that stress operate and uh, how can we prevent um, hive collapse due to stress so oh, that, interesting yeah okay mm. so we all know what well we all know what a honeybee is I hope yeah. we'll in our gardens. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they live in colonies, and these mm-hmm. are commercial hives in the picture. Mm-hmm. And um, you might see them if you're travelling in the country. Um, and when the apiarist comes along and to inspect her hive, she'll pull up the frames, mm-hmm. which live in the hive, and the frames you can see are covered in. Um, yeah. In, in in honeycomb or, or comb, mm-hmm. some of be brood comb, and yeah. she looks at the number of bees. She looks at how much brood there is. So brood is baby bees. So mm-hmm. it's larvae and pupae which live in these combs. And then she makes some assessment whether the hive is healthy or not. And if it's healthy, she puts the lid back on, and goes away and perhaps comes back again in three three weeks or a month.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So. Um, we could also ask why honeybee is important. And of course, we, we like honey. Mm-hmm. But the real reason that they, they are important is pollination. Oh, yeah. And pollination is the carrying of pollen mm. from um, the, the stamens of one flower to the, um, to the um, stigma of, of another.
0: Mm-hmm. And pollination
1: provides us with all this wonderful food.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's estimated that about one in three mouthfuls that we take Mm -hmm. are from foods that need honeybees to be pollinated yeah so very very
0: important very very important
1: yeah so there's been a lot in the news about colony loss and colony collapse events as a sort of big headline reason for loss when Mm -hmm. your apiarist comes back and she pulls out the frame and she looks at it and she can see she can see the brood Oh, okay. You can see here that this, this all this covered thing, mm-hmm. uh, but there aren't very many adult bees. There are no dead bees in the bottom of the box. Mm-hmm. Something weird has happened to the colony. Right. But there's also other, re- uh, and, and this is actually an old phenomenon. There's records of it back to 900, 950 in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Big event 1905, even in Australia. But more recently, there has been more of it all over the world. Interesting. But there's also other things that happen. So bees can get sick. So you can see this little thing here. That's a Varroa mite. Oh. And Varroa mites um, jumped species actually from the from another bee species into these um, Apis mellifera, the the bee that we domesticated. And it every other country in the world has Varroa except for Australia. Wow. And because we are free from Varroa, we can raise bees without using a lot of um, miticides to kill Mm -hmm. Varroa. And it also means we can export bees. So we export Mm. hundreds of kilograms of live bees, for example, from the USA, because they're disease free and they Mm. don't have Varroa. So we're Mm. a very, very fortunate. continent but mm. one day Varroa will come to Australia. Wow. Um, is there any way to prevent it? <laughs> well this is why we have very strict customs um, oh. regulations and they also near ports and things they have things called um, um, they have they have special hives I can't remember what they're called which mm-hmm. they look at very regularly to see if any diseases come in oh, because goodness. if they do come in they expect they'll find them first there and then they can um, mm. quarantine the, the area. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, very
0: hard to get rid of if they come in. Probably very very hard hard to get rid of. Yeah,
1: very hard. And there are other diseases. This is a bee with a deformed wing virus. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: There are also problems from overwintering, which we don't have so much in Australia, but Mm -hmm. in Canada and northern US, it's a big problem. Yeah. So there are lots of sort of threats to bees. This is an article from the Guardian. You can see I copied it just at the end of beginning of last year. Just the other headlines, but um, the the almond crop heavily relies on honeybees, both mm. in Australia and in the US. Mm-hmm. And the, the sort of pressure that puts on those colonies, they lose a lot of them. The, mm. the almond growers pay for them to come, and the, the honey, the the colonies are put there to pollinate the trees. Yeah. But a lot of them get diseased, they get ill, and um, and they they don't go back home from where they came from. Ooh. So uh, when yeah, so there are lots of causes of colony loss. So these are some diseases. Nezema is actually a, essentially honeybee but diarrhea. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: pesticides is a big problem. Climate change, um, particularly, you know, too hot, too cold. Mm-hmm. Um, foraging on. Um, monoculture so this mm-hmm. is like for example if you just spent your life eating white bread it's not good for humans mm. monocultures are not good for bees either that's true um, being fed artificial foods that's mcdonald's mm-hmm. for bees <laughs> <laughs> um, being transported uh, beehives can be transported in big trucks here's a picture of one yeah. and uh, in the u.s they take um, they take the bees as they come out of winter hibernation mm-hmm from Northern US and they put them in big trucks. They drive them across to California Mm -hmm. to to work on the almond harvest um, and they don't do well. Microwave radiation's even been suggested. So it's a whole lot of things. But all together what do they mean? They mean stress. So these are putting colonies under stress. Mm -hmm. So then the question is how do these stresses then give us hive loss? Mm-hmm. but what's the mechanism of hive loss why do they, why do you get these hives with no adult bees mm-hmm. other things mm-hmm. and so I, I I had been working with bee mm. scientists for a long time before this but yeah. uh, so Andrew Barron who is at Macquarie then got in contact with me said, so I have this hypothesis mm-hmm. about hive loss and the hypothesis was that they're losing the forager bees the bees that are out in the world collecting pollen, collecting nectar, mm-hmm. and that because they lose the forager bees, that drives the loss of adult bees from the hive. That's true, and says, I, you know, I need a mathematician, oh. I need a mathematician <laughs> <laughs> so that you can tra- put next to models yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: mm-hmm. and also um, bees highly rely on um, forager um, bees because, you know, they're worker bees, they do a lot for the hive, so, you know, losing them, that means losing the whole hive. Well, it's even more complicated than that. Nathalie. Oh, let, is it? Let all me show right. you. love <laughs> show to hear them. more about it. That's how, bee bee bee. That's how much I know. That's how much I
1: know. So this is honeybee demographics and demographics is just the sort of mathematics and the science of populations. At all right. So honeybees like us get older. Mm-hmm. As they get older, they, what, they, what they do changes. So a young honeybee starts as an egg, and it develops into a larvae,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is a little white worm. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and um, all these eggs are laid by a queen bee. This is a picture of a queen bee. She's been marked with paint by the apiarist. So when yeah. they light the frames, they can see her quickly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the bees stay as eggs. They develop into larvae. And then they um, then they actually pupate. And the, when they pupate, they're covered by the adult bees. Now, when a bee emerges from pupation, mm-hmm. she, um, and, and all, all bees are female except for drones, and you will seldom see a drone. Yeah. Okay. Um, she she becomes a hive bee. So she works in the hive. She looks after keeping things clean. She looks after the queen. She helps store and make honey.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but as she gets older, she then becomes recruited to the forager force.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Goes out into the, the, the world, and she she collects. Yes. Nectar
0: and nectars
1: and pollen. But the thing about foragers are they're very vulnerable, they die. So any bee that you get stung by and mm-hmm. therefore it dies or you tread on right. or you spray with insecticide or you see wandering in a very distressed state or on the pathway is a forager.
0: Oh, okay.
1: okay so so hive bees generally don't die, foragers do die. And so generally the foragers are the older bees. And that's not just because they're expendable, but it's also because their brains are more mature and their wings are more mature.
0: Oh,
1: yeah. So this is called age-based polyethism, which age-based work allocation. Mm-hmm. And as well as this recruitment, there's also what's called a social inhibition. So if if, if the hive has lots of foragers, mm-hmm. don't tend to get recruitment foragers. Mm-hmm. The hive bee has few foragers. Then you get rec- more recruitment. If the hive has few foragers, then you get more recruitment from the hive bees. Okay. And the other thing we know is that if you've got a big colony, it raises more brood. Okay. There's more yeah. workers to look after the, the baby bees, and yeah. um, and you know, so it raises more brood. So yeah. we wanted to put all of this together into a mathematical model and explore what happened when we increased the death rates of foragers. Oh, okay. So, so I'm just going to just now take you on a little aside about equations, because I'm going to show you some equations I'm sure, yeah, my sure. mathematicians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no I love
0: to see that.
1: So what do we do? We, so we put these, we knew the numbers, the, the different parameters, these, the, these things here are just numbers. Mm-hmm. It, symbols and we knew what values those would take because there's lots of data on honeybees Mm -hmm. and we put it all into a model and we put it onto the computer and what do we get? Mm -hmm. This is what we've got. So this is a colony where about a third of the foragers are lost every day. Okay, whether they're sprayed with pesticides, whether they're trodden on, whether something eats them, but they're gone. And you can see here this is the number of bees we're starting with about um, 20,000 bees. And it, as it, it rapidly well, it, numbers drop quite rapidly and then they slowly tail off towards zero. So after about two months, you've gone from having 20,000 bees to having probably about 10% of that, 33,000. So right. losing heart, a third of your foragers, this is predicting, is really bad. If right. you want less, the colony survives. Mm-hmm. Once you get to a certain point, no, it's gone. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we wrote that up and we sent it out to a scientific journal, and then we got a whole lot of emails back. Wow. And the emails said, What about food? Surely food's important here. Uh, what about the brood? Surely what's happening with the brood is important. So we thought, okay, let's go back and look at that. (laughs) That was the food. So this is, I mean, modeling, there's just this dialogue often with experimental people and other people about how you're going to do it. What Mm decisions are you going to make? So we looked at food and the adult bees need food, but so does the brood. And it's actually important both in the egg stage and in the larval stage. The larvae are fed food by the hive bees. Mm -hmm. They consume food, but both eggs and larvae can be cannibalized by bees. So honeybees really do eat their babies. Wow. Um, and that's because they get short; they can get short of protein. So they recycle the protein from eggs and young larvae so they can feed the older larvae so they can get a bigger population. Oh, okay. Interesting. And that can work. Okay. So um, honeybees aren't as cute and fluffy as you might be.
0: They can be quite nasty as well, okay. <laughs> if that's <You> new. <laughs> but we still
1: love them. We still want them. <laughs> okay, so we put all of that in. And this is a, a graph. And so this is the um, amount of brood. So these mm-hmm. are the, the um, this is the uncapped brood, basically larvae and eggs. Right. And here is a number of forages, and here's a number of hive bees, mm-hmm. and this is a number of food and, you can, and the amount of food. And you can see the food here is going off the scale. Yeah. So this is this is where a, a, a apiarist who is producing honey wants her hives to be. She mm-hmm. wants to be lots of lots of food, lots of honey stored yeah. in the hive. So the food is essentially honey, and some of it's pollen stored. Mm-hmm. So this is where I'm losing ten percent of forages per day, which is pretty normal, right? Right. Um, so that's healthy. And we've got about 50,000 bees there. Mm-hmm. And if we, um, if we go, if we lose a little bit uh, under a third, you can see here the number of, this is on the same scale as the previous question, the number of uh, foragers has dropped, the number of hive bees has dropped. Actually the number of brood, does, the amount of brood doesn't drop that much. Model mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And the food is only accumulating is accumulating much more slowly right. um, and if we go up to losing half our forages per day it all crashes
0: mm-hmm. so
1: you can see here everything goes downhill but there's still some food left when we uh-huh. get ash mm-hmm. which we were really pleased about because that that modeled what people observed that these hives collapsed and there was still food left
0: mm-hmm.
1: so the, the food the this hive is not starving right something else is going wrong. Yeah
0: something is going wrong.
1: Yeah okay so but so we published that too but we do know that hive loss is not a slow decay but the population jumps off a cliff to use it you know so rapidly it it rapidly declines and what so we've missed something right Right. okay so Mm -hmm. our model doesn't show that what's Mm -hmm. going on Mm. So Andrew went away. Andrew Barron, my experimental collaborator, and he came back to me and said, look, I think what we've missed is that as honeybees get younger when they start foraging, they are not as good as foragers because Uh their brains aren't old enough and their wings aren't properly mature. Mm -hmm. And that has lots of implications. Partly they just get lost. They're not as good as their job. They tend to die sooner. And maybe that's what makes the whole population jump off a cliff. So they die more. And if you've got losing more foragers, you're going to have a higher recruitment rate. Mm -hmm. And they're going to spend less time as hive bees. So you'll have fewer hive bees, younger foragers. So you can begin to see that this might be a problem. Mm -hmm. So can we build that into our model? And yes, we could. to do that, we needed some data. So Andrew did some experiments. So here's a honeybee, and they took about 10 hives.
0: Right. And all,
1: all the bees in the hive, they gathered each an RFID tag. Wow. So a little thing like that that you stick on the back of the bee.
0: Is it hard to get
1: those sticker or dust
0: tag on the body?
1: Yeah, it's so really hard. They, they actually so refrigerate. Little. They refrigerate the bees, right? And that uh. puts them to sleep. And then mm. Andrew and his postdocs—they um, spent just hours and hours now sticking RFID tags onto bees. Wow! So they would have done that for about twenty thousand bees. Wow! <laughs> so 20. there are days I'm very glad I'm a theoretician. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> no, that's, not, that's right, Big very one more, one more, 20,000, how many people they recorded now we're talking about. (laughs) I I mean, I I know from other experiments that my collaborators do that sometimes you can spend weeks doing this sort of thing or painting bees so that you can identify them. Um, You know, sometimes they're working with Hives or swarms where every single bee has a unique identification. Do something like that, just oh. take the hours. But bees are, bees are such nice experimental systems that you can do that. For example, in termites, you couldn't do anything like that.
0: Oh.
1: So, yeah. Um, so, anyway, why do we have RFID tags? Well, they put a reader just at the door of the hive. So every time a bee went in and out, mm-hmm. they could read which bee it was. So they knew all about yeah. which bees were coming and going.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, was there, because they With a GPS,
0: I know that you can track them.
1: Yeah, no, there are GPS trackers you can put on honeybees, but they're, because they're so tiny, I mean, I think they'll be cheaper now, but they used to be so expensive that if you lost one, you were in trouble. You didn't care about the bee, but the thing stuck on its back, that you cared about because that cost oh. a long one. But RFID tags are much cheaper. Oh, okay. Uh, you know they you, they just read as you go in and out, and so from that they found bees that become foragers at a young age die sooner. Interesting. So here's the lifetime of as a forager.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can see the older you are when you begin foraging, right. the longer you're going to live. Um. Particularly once you get over about four days, you know before four days you're going mm. you're not gonna survive very long at all. Oh, interesting. Um, they don't collect as much food, so again, here younger bees don't take as many foraging trips. We couldn't actually measure how much food they collected because you actually have to take the bee, kill it, and find what's in its uh, honey crop to do that. Right. But they, they definitely don't travel as much as, as, as bees when they get a little bit older. Mm. Um, they may die before they start foraging, so bees. As they're making this transition from hive bees to foragers they go out into the world and they look around and they learn to fly and they learn to find their hive again mm. and the young foragers often did not survive that transition period oh. so we put all of that into the model and what did we get well here we are this is a healthy hive and again we're losing about 10 or 20 percent um no, I think 10 about 10 percent here in this model right. and this here this red line is the forager age and you can mm-hmm. see the axis on that side yeah, yeah. and um, everything's healthy we've got about 16 oh, we've got more than 16,000 bees in that we've got probably about 30,000 adult mm-hmm. foragers and hive bees um, then if we sort of just about double the loss you can see the scales here has changed at 16,000. And the average age that bees start foraging has gone from about 18 days now to about eight. Oh. There are much, much younger bees out there. Oh. The brood collection is right down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The brood is about the same and the hive bees and the foragers are down. If we decrease that a little more, we can see we now, we're now getting this jump off the cliff thing. Oh. And all the, all the populations are dropping. Mm-hmm. And if I came as an apiarist and I pulled up the frame and I looked at what was on it and I thought, oh, a bit light for bees, but they're still plenty brood and it'll be all right. right. But then I'd come back three weeks time, and it would be gone. Yeah. So you can see once you start building that feedback in, there's a problem. So does forager loss drive hive loss? Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. So this is a, this is the. Um, hypothesis. Our maths model confirmed the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that's not reality, but it gives my collaborators, um, you -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. a a sound basis for going on and doing experiments, and labelling thousands of bees and, you know, growing, having number and hives and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it drives it at an accelerating rate. So as forages become younger, food stores become less, Um, horrible things begin to happen
0: interesting is there any way to trade
1: (laughs) them? first of all the first thing this tells us and you can see that brood I, I hope you did see that as as we change the forager loss the brood didn't change that much mm-hmm. and often what happened was aprons would pull it up say okay there's lots of brood the hive's doing right. okay right. but actually what you need to look at is the adult bees and there are oh. ways of doing that mm-hmm. and that has actually already changed practice in the mm-hmm. agricultural industry
0: interesting
1: we know that from the model that we can rescue collapsing hives by in-hive feeding so Apis t- t- typically have things like bee food you know artificial bee food mm-hmm. so it comes in lumps um, and they can just put that inside the hive so nobody needs to go into the outside world the food is there oh. and therefore you don't have vulnerable foragers going out into the outside world interesting so we put that into our model into the food part of the model and we saw that once we put the food in hive. This is um, this is this is a hive that collapsed before. Yeah,
0: yeah. no, that's um, working. It,
1: still, it suddenly starts working again because yeah. the the, the fo- there is food there. The foragers don't go out as much. There's not mm-hmm. as much pressure to recruit, and we can rescue that hive.
0: That's interesting. Yep.
1: Yeah. Um, Now we have this model with all this demography in it, all this Mm. thing about how honeybee populations work, we can use that as a platform for modeling specific diseases and pests. And this is a lot of this has been done in Canada now. Mm. Uh, And you can see Varroa, this horrible mite that we don't have, but everyone else does, affects bees at all stages. Right. Of their um, of their development. But right. nezema, yeah. which is a honeybee diarrhea, it's yeah. caused by a parasite, only affects bees at two stages. So we can build in the, the population dynamics and the disease dynamics as well. Mm-hmm. So this is epidemiology for bees. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. How, can,
0: how can they get rid of these bacteria?
1: And- uh, well, the, bac- the bacteria, there are things you can do with how you look after your hives. Um, to reduce the spread. I mean, it's a bit like COVID, right? There are things yeah. we can do, we can wear masks, we can take care how many people we associate with. And there are also ways you can look after your hives that will help these things. Mm-hmm. Um, Varroa, they actually use um, chemicals, miticides to oh, okay. control that, but that's not very that, that also has an impact on the bees. So, yeah, yeah and probably in their production and pro- yeah and you know makes a less green production um and the other thing is it gives the this is these are called differential equations they just sort of give overall pictures about how things are changing mm-hmm. but you can make much more complicated models and sure. knowing what your simple model does lets you make complicated models with confidence because you've got something to test yeah again.
0: that's sure
1: so yeah So I guess the story is mathematics is significant in fighting honeybee loss. Mm -hmm. And because we need honeybees for food production, then it has an impact on food security. And in fact, some of this modelling was used by the EU
0: Mm -hmm.
1: when they were making a case to ban certain pesticides called neonicotinoids. Mm -hmm. So um, the mathematics has had an impact already on that. In a fairly correct
0: way. Um, I would like to ask you to share some pain points as being a a successful academic person.
1: Oh, there are never enough hours in the day. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, because although we we all work, but we also have other lives as well. And you know, Mm. I've brought up two children. I've uh, had elderly parents, elderly parents-in-law. who've taken time at different times of my career Um, you know you you need to sleep you need to exercise you need to just rest a bit so I think um, you know and there's the the problem with academia and I think most jobs is there is almost always more you can do there's always another paper you can read there's another person you can talk to you can make your teaching better in different ways you know The, the do list never stops that's sure and is. for years and years and years for christmas i used to ask for a 48 hour day <laughs> and no one ever gave me one or any <laughs> so, i mean i think i think that i think that um that would be the the main one um part, as you get more senior you get involved in more sort of um things around governance and mm-hmm and making sure your discipline and your your school that you're part of you know your department runs smoothly yeah. um, and that's very rewarding but it also can be extremely stressful right. um, you know if you've put doing something big and it has to happen and yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah i mean I, I i think but i think everybody um, has uh, has the time problem these days as oh. I do.
0: Okay, yeah. that's really good because i personally would be quite interested in um uh, your knowledge and your your papers to kind of translate it Oh, do not say translated, but sort of present yeah. it in a kind of easier way for yeah. uh, for the students that's that's one of the things that i do um at bungee pipe which is my brand is educational um platform for children so and and um over the last five years of working with kids i've realized that um, it, it helps them a lot uh, when you start talking yes. about application to sort of relate it to uh, something sensible um, out there. Um, so you give mm. them motivation. Also, they tend to kind of listen more to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I can see that. You're very at the moment too with all the COVID math modelling. Oh wow! That that you know because that's the, I mean I know I know couple, I know the person in Sydney is doing it. I know some of the people in Melbourne. Um, you know, and that's all, um, you know, it can be a very, you can think about it in a very simple way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I mean, that, that that's just a really relevant type of modelling, mm-hmm. modelling now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. indeed. Yeah.
0: indeed. It's, it's quite interesting one as well, because there's, there's a lot of ans- uncertainty about it out there. So. That's right.
1: And how, <laughs> yeah, how do you incorporate that in your models and... You know, but but the fact is that the health advice that we get all the time—yeah—part of that relies on a whole lot of quite big models, but the principles underlying those are very, very straightforward. Mm,
0: That's interesting, Mm. eh? isn't it? Alrighty. So, what would be your advice to your 14 years old? (laughs) What would you tell you? So,
1: I'd say it all gets better. I mean I I think I think you know I've always been someone who you know in the Scottish phrase gangs her own gate goes her own way yeah. um and I think you know I was fortunate at school that I had a group of friends
0: mm. who
1: at some level put up with that <laughs> um, but you know um the but I think you you know you you have particular interests when you're growing as a person mm. and um and you know you're, you're in a community, certainly at school, right. um, where not not everyone shares that interest. I mean, I was in a comprehensive high school,
0: right. um,
1: and it was a comprehensive high school without a good music program,
0: right?
1: Because that's where I would have gone rather than into sport. And um, and you know, you it was easy to feel who's like me. I mean, yeah, and. I was also very fortunate to have an outstanding math teacher in years 11 and 12. And mm. in fact, there were more girls and boys in our four unit math class. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, it wasn't a big four unit math class. But no. um, yeah, so so there were things where, you know, at school you fitted in. But then I came to uni and I found these people, you know, who, this sort of group of friends who were interested in bushwalks, who were interested in music, and suddenly your world expands. And you yeah. can't see that when you're 14 in about year yeah. year 9 and 10. Yeah. Um, that your world will expand yeah. and, and you'll have these opportunities down the track. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: It's just like like constantly growing and expanding. Yeah. yeah. That's right, then, that's right. then you meet a new person along the way and then it's just that person so opens a new window and you might not even thought about it before you might not yeah, even that's... imagine about
1: you know getting there even. and and you once you leave school you have the freedom to go into um, worlds and places that suit you in a structured and about the things that, that 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 you you care about and that you're interested in
0: mm.
1: whereas i think um sometimes at school it's really hard to see that you know it's all about getting getting hsc done you yeah know, yeah you
0: know
1: behaving properly in class or, <laughs> or not behaving properly in class i did a bit of that too yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. think that's a time to change? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was I was subversive rather than um rather than a naughty child. We used to have to fill in four copies of these forms every year. Yeah. I mean, this was in the age before the copy and paste computer. Yeah. And so I used to write more and more um, you know, sort of wild answers. So I was sorry I wasn't the eldest of three, and then I could have written position and family anti-penultimate. Right, right. Yes, yeah, so or um, you know, one time we had uh, we had to write something about disabilities, and I wrote mm-hmm. chronic indolence. <laughs> indolence is laziness, and the teacher must have read the forms because he told my parents I'd done this. <laughs> 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 so, anyway, but yeah, so I was subversive rather than actually naughty. I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, great. So, yeah. um any checking ritual to share with with our audience something that you enjoy enjoy to do um regularly and you got you think you got benefit out of it and you don't want to just you know put that aside
1: yeah it's kind of hard after because covid just throws everything up in the air doesn't it and you're working at home and and you you're not um you're not um doing normal things i mean just a very simple one and one as a parent I'm very proud of is that we, we always have family dinner together, you mm. know, people are home yeah. um, and when my girls were home, you know, we, we had the four of us and sometimes they're friends as well and sometimes my father. So having that sort of meeting, uh, that sort of meeting time at the end of the day over food, I it's think great, it's great, isn't it? It been, has been lovely and uh, not not giving that up and sort of saying, oh, it's too much trouble, but no, it's, it's nice.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Hey, interesting. All right. So, that was all the questions I wanted to um, ask you. If you would like to share anything else, add anything
1: else, feel free to. No, I don't think so. Um, Yeah, no, I I can't think of anything. You probably, yeah, yeah. All right.